Today's scripture reading is going to be from Colossians 1, 9 through 15. And so from the day we have heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Um, we have had, you know, we have different people reading the scripture um, each week at our church. We, I was coming to the realization the other day that we've had actually all of our staff come up and read before, um, except for this one here. Uh, her name is Mariana, and if you guys know what she does for the church, she's part of our creative team here at Life Point Church. And so when you see uh, graphics, series graphics, uh, website graphics, Instagram, all the, the, those kind of things that re- require uh, creative development, that's what Mariana does for all of our campuses at Life Point. So I uh, wanted to bring her up here today as well as... Uh, she is my daughter as well. And so uh, uh, Paul said in Romans that uh, charm is deceitful and beauty is in vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. And uh, Mariana is to be praised. All right? Thanks, Dad. I love you, sweetie. You guys can have a seat. Uh, the word of God has been uh, read. Let me pray and then we'll... We'll dive in. Father, we have heard your voice. God, would you awaken sinners in this room today to life? There are people in here today that are living their life however they want to. There is much pain and sorrow and suffering, they have hard hearts. And God, they, uh, they're looking for answers. Father, I pray that you awaken sinners to new life today in yourself. I pray that you awaken the saints to old truths that we may have forgotten or to new things that we need to understand about you. Above all things, exalt Christ in the preaching of your word today. Pray that we would see him more clearly, more beautifully than we did before we walked in today, and that our lives would look different because of it. We ask these things in Christ's name, amen. All right, open up to the book of Colossians 1. Um, I'd love to ask you to bring your Bibles. I want to make sure that you all know that I'm not up here making stuff up. And so you can fact check me along the way, and, uh, and so it's good for us to do these things. Last week, uh, we started a new series in the book of Colossians, so if you missed, uh, you can go back online and kind of catch that sermon of last week and get caught up with this. Of course, we know that, that watching a sermon online is not church, that's not doing church. 
Um, however, it, it sometimes is a good supplement when, when we do miss the Lord's gathering for legitimate reasons. So if you need to do that, catch up with us. Um, out of all of the letters that Paul wrote, which some say anywhere between 13 and 14 epistles, uh, I believe that Colossians is probably the most Christ-exalting, um, Christ-centered letter of all the ones that Paul wrote. Colossians, from uh, the theme of it, from the start to the finish, is about the centrality, the supremacy, the preeminence and sufficiency of Jesus Christ in all things, in all of creation, in all of history, in all of time, in all of circumstances, in all things, in all people, and in all of our lives, Christ Jesus is over everything. That is what the book of Colossians is all about. And if we see that rightly, then we not need to, as Christians, turn to anything else in our lives to cure us, to comfort us, or to, uh, to kind of coddle us or, or, or deliver us or comfort us. Any, we shouldn't have to turn to anything else in our life to even complete us. Jesus Christ is everything to us. Last week, as we opened up this letter, in verses one and two, Paul gave a greeting to the church. Verses three through eight, Paul gave thanks for the church. Now today, in verses nine through 14, Paul is going to pray for the church. So we're gonna look at today his prayer for the church. There's so much gold on the ground here in this passage, I just have to pick it up. And I hope we have time to do it because there's a lot of stuff here today. Let me give you the scene as Paul prays for the church. You're in prison. It's dark, it's cold, you're hungry, you don't know where your next meal is coming from, you don't know when you might be freed, and you go to prayer. What do you pray for? You bow your head in that situation, what do you pray for? Or, or what do you ask God out of the gate? God, why? I'm good. I'm doing your work. Why prison, God? Is that what you pray for? Or do you pray for deliverance, freedom, to be warm and well-fed? Bless me, protect me, heal me, deliver me, God. Of course, there's nothing wrong with praying those things. Some of the most um, heroic people in the Bible prayed for those things. However, if the main thrust of your prayer life sounds like a child, give me, give me, give me, it does kind of reveal something about our spiritual maturity. How does Paul pray? Paul prays for something different. Paul prays for a group of people that he's never even met. Remember, the passage we've learned last week that Paul had never been to Colossae, never even met these people. And yet, he's offering up intercessory prayer for people that he had never, ever met. Why? Because there's power and encouragement in intercessory prayer for other people. This is a great reminder for us that we should obviously pray for brothers and sisters in the faith 
even people we don't know. People in other gospel-centered, Bible-preaching churches in Rutherford County. How many times do we do that? We should pray for uh, gospel-centered churches across the country. We should pray for people in our Brussels campus and in our Bangkok campus of LifePoint Church, all of our ministry partners in Brazil and Asia and Africa, all parts of the world. We should be praying for people even when we don't know them. I'll show you the power of that. You guys remember Ray Levy, who was the pastor at Brussels, Life Point Brussels, who came to us and visited us and preached to us a few months ago. He left here and, uh, and had done a lot of reflection on his time here at the Creek specifically, because this is where he preached at. And so last week, Pat had visited uh, Brussels campus and Ray shared with Pat, he says, you know what one of the most encouraging things that I experienced when I was at Smyrna, Tennessee, specifically the creek, he said is when people came up to me and said, I don't even know you and I've been praying for you. That breathed life into Ray and his ministry and it shows us and reminds us of the power of intercessory prayer. So Paul is praying for people again who he's never met before. And Paul, if you'll notice, you read the text here, he doesn't pray for their health and their wealth. He doesn't say, God, give them a great job. Give them a great home to live in. A good medical report. Deliver them from the cancer. Give them freedom. Give them, uh, provide all of their needs. He doesn't pray that way. Again, there's nothing wrong with praying those things. But something was different about Paul's prayers. Paul prayed for their spiritual growth. He prayed for their spiritual growth. That's what he's praying for in 9 through 14 today. We love growth, by the way. We love our growth, right? Kids, students in the room, you know you love growth like when you measure yourself up against the door frames of your houses. Can any parents do that in here? When their kids are growing up, they're kind of charting on the frame. Kids love growth. They love to measure it, and they get so excited about that. Parents, we love to watch our children grow up and mature, right? We love financial growth, don't we? Right? Financial, uh, our bank accounts, 401k. We love that kind of growth. We love academic growth. We love athletic growth. We love growth, except when it comes to weight and waistlines, right? We don't love that kind of growth, right? But we're people who love growth. We place a high premium on physical, emotional, intellectual growth. But Paul puts a premium on something completely different than that. Paul puts a premium on spiritual growth. Spiritual growth. How do you measure spiritual growth? Uh, I think we, we make the mistake of assuming spiritual growth is measured by things like church commitment. Um, uh, by giving, by serving, by being in community, by memorization of the scriptures, all of those things. And again, those things are good. And if you're not doing those things, it does reveal your spiritual immaturity. Make no mistake about that. But 
We also know that you could do all of those things and not even have a spiritual pulse. There's a lot of people that serve, give, show up every time the church doors are open, and they don't know Jesus at all. So you can't measure it just by those externals. So how do we measure that? What is spiritual growth? What does it look like? That's what Paul's going to show us today in verses 9 through 14. He prays for four things in this passage today. He prays that they would have more knowledge, they would have more holiness, that they would have more power, and that they would have more gratitude. Let's look at those four things. The first, his prayer is he prays for more knowledge for them. Let's read this together, verses Actually, just verse nine. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Why does Paul address knowledge here first? Like, why does he start here? Is, there, is he just randomly spitballing things? No, I don't think so. What helps us Remember why he's addressing knowledge here is the context of the letter. Remember, Paul had gotten the report from Epaphras that there was a lot of false teaching and toxic philosophies that were influencing the church, right? And that they were teaching things that were diminishing and distracting from Christ. Well, one of those groups of people, the false teachers, were the Gnostics. I talked about them last week. The Gnostics were people that were teaching the Christians, hey, Jesus is a good place to start. But he's not enough. The knowledge of Jesus is not enough for you to live your life. You need more. You need additional gnosis is the word. You need an additional secret, special knowledge, rites, rituals, passwords of the Gnostic system. And they were influencing these Christians to think that they needed more. That Jesus was not enough. The Gnostics had this high, superior, know-it-all attitude, elitist kind of mentality, and and the people in the church in Colossae had begun to breathe it in and believe it. And so they fell. So Paul comes in, and he's gonna give a different kind of knowledge that they need, not that knowledge for selfish, prideful gain. He prays for them to have what is called an epignosis, which is the knowledge of God. God's will, totally different. He says, I pray that they would be filled with the knowledge of God's will. One of the biggest questions people ask pastors is, how do I know God's will for my life? Who to marry, where to move, do I buy this house, do I not buy this house? Do I take this job or do I not take this job? Right, that, that's the, the, the mind immediately goes to spaces like that. That's called the secret will of God. It's hidden. He's not written in the scriptures where you need to work or who you need to marry, where you need to move into a new neighborhood. He's not written them there and he's not writing it in the clouds with his finger. So don't look for signs and wonders. We should, of course, pray for God's will discerning in those situations. We should seek godly counsel from other people trying to discern God's will. But that's not what Paul's praying for here. Paul is praying that they be full of the knowledge of God's revealed moral 
will in this book. That is what he's praying for, for these people. He's talking about that they would be full of knowledge of how to be saved, how to be sanctified, how to be spirit-filled, how to stand up for truth, how to be submissive, how to suffer. He's praying that they be full of the knowledge of God's will for marriage, for money, for sexuality, for issues of abortion, parenting, government, genders, the roles of men and women in the home and in the church. That's what he's praying for, that they would know God's will on all of those things. I believe that one of the single greatest threats today to the Christian's joy and flourishing and effectiveness in witnessing to a wicked world is Christians without Christian minds. Heart-filled, empty heads, lacking in the knowledge of God's will. There was a book written about 30 years ago, and it was titled, Everything I Needed to Know, I Learned It in Kindergarten. Now, sadly, that is the position that many Christians have taken in their faith. They know the basics They've graduated from the kindergarten of Christianity. And so they live in that space. They don't go deeper. They live their lives in the shallow pool of Christianity, the kiddie pool of Christianity, despite the fact it's warmer there. And it's weird to see grown adults playing in the kiddie pool, right? But that's where they live. They just kind of stay in that area because it's comfortable, it's easy. You don't have to go down to the deep waters. It's dangerous down there. I'll just kind of stay safely here. And that is a threat to Christianity. Christian growth and maturity start with knowledge of God's will. It doesn't stop there, of course, but it has to start there. J.C. Ryle said this, Ignorance of God's will is the root of all error. But the knowledge of God's will is the best antidote against all modern heresies. You see, being full of the knowledge of God's will in your life, it helps you to be stabilized It helps you to be consistent in your life with the truths of God's word and not be tossed to and fro with every wave of doctrine and to have Baskin-Robbins theology, whatever the flavor of the day, I'll just believe that. Being rooted in the knowledge of God's word is what we all need. Think about some of these issues, money, for example. Money, the world says that It's your money. You worked hard for it. You deserve it. You do whatever you want to with it. And if you can't afford it, you finance that thing. You put it on the credit card. 
And of course, that leads to being slaves to the lender, depression, slavery of the dollar, consumer covetousness, debt, stress in your life. That's what you do if you believe that it's your stuff. If you don't know God's will about money, that's the area and that's the domain you'll live in. But if you know God's revealed will about money, you'll see that it's all God's money. He owns cattle on a thousand hills. He owns all things. And that everything that we have, we're just stewards of it. That's all we are. We're stewards. And I take that money, and if I know that it's God's money, I tithe to God. I show him that I believe that it is his money. I give generously for the sake of the gospel. And then I use the rest of the money to provide my needs. Bread, home, shelter. Yeah, we can do those things. But that's what it means to know the knowledge of God's will in the matters of money. Think about marriage for a minute. The world says that marriage is conditional, not covenantal. It's performance-based, not grace-based. So if your spouse isn't doing it for you and making you happy, not performing up to standards, you just hit the eject button. You're gone. After all, God wants you to be happy. He surely wouldn't want you to suffer in a marriage like this. So you just eject. You're just gone. God's word says, what God has joined, let no man separate. Knowing God's word in our marriage, his will in our marriages, means that men don't abuse or neglect the beautiful role of headship, spiritual leadership of the home. Knowing God's will for the marriage, our ladies won't have an allergy to the word submission. They will love it and see that this is God's design for flourishing in their lives and in their marriage. Think about forgiveness The world says if someone's wronged you, don't forgive them. They don't deserve it. I'm just gonna run away from this situation. I'm gonna avoid it at all costs. I'll even leave the church and just go to another church just so I don't have to deal with this issue. Or the world says that if you have wronged someone, "Ah, it's no big deal, nobody's perfect. I really don't have to ask for forgiveness from them. After all, that's really a sign of weakness to bow down and ask for forgiveness for somebody. But God's word says that those who have been forgiven forgive much. We go to people who have wronged us and we go to people that we have wronged and we seek reconciliation and peace when possible. Other matters, LGBT. When you don't know God's will revealed will about these issues. You can get tossed and confused by the LGBT agenda. You can get lured into this idea that you think that puberty blockers and chemical and physical castrations of our children are okay. That is not what the revealed will of God says. 
such inconsistencies in that community because they don't have objective truth. Let me give you an example. The LGBT says that a celebrating homosexual is born that way. They can't change. Unless you're a transgender and then you can change the way that you were born. There is no knowledge of God's will in their life. Think about issues of abortion, racism. These are issues that the Bible is extremely clear on. But if you don't know the revealed will of God, you too can be tossed to and fro. It is Paul's prayer that we be full of the knowledge of God's will in all things, in all of life. After, after all, that's the very heart of God, by the way. Look at, let me look at a couple passages here. 2 Peter 3.18, listen to what Peter says. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and of the day of eternity. Amen. Look at 1 Corinthians. Paul said it like this. 1420, brothers, sisters, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. That is gold. Infants in evil, but to be mature in the knowledge of God. I think there's some application here for us And I think this is what it did to me as I preached this to myself this week. I really kind of said, okay, what what do I typically pray for personally? When I get with my D group, what do we typically pray for? And I'm being honest with you, oftentimes it was for physical, health, relational health. Oh, I got a little job situation over here, going to the doctor's, a surgery next week, let's pray for that. My kids, oh, my kids are off the rails. My kids going away to college. Just pray for these things. And we should pray for those things. But if I'm lining my prayer life up with Paul's prayer life, there is a big gap. Maybe there's that gap in your life as well. Paul tells us that we should be praying for the spiritual health of one another. And if, they, if Paul's doing this for people he'd never even met, how much more should we pray for one another who we do know here, right? This is what our prayer life should look like. I think another application question here is, if we're praying for those things for others, shouldn't we also be pursuing the fullness of the knowledge of God's will in our life? Shouldn't we all also be increasing in the knowledge of God? Verse 10, the answer, of course, is yes. We never graduate from the knowledge of God's will. That is a thing for future glory. We always are learning and increasing in the knowledge of God's will. How do we do that? How would you do that? Here's the first thing that you can do. If you're sitting there, you're saying, Here's the person, I, I, I got a Bible, I don't really understand it, when I, when I, when I read it, I'm just struggling a little bit, I, I, I'm busy, I don't get into it as much as I ought to, and I know I should, 
I know it's good for me. I know I should not be a child in my thinking, and I want to grow. How do, you, how do you start? Where do you start? Well, the first place you start is by asking the giver of knowledge. You start by asking God. God, increase my knowledge. Wasn't that Solomon's prayer? You know how Solomon got so wise and full of knowledge? He asked God for it. That's what he did. He asked God for it more than he asked for riches and gold and silver and all those things. He said, God, give me knowledge and wisdom and understanding. And God, what did God do? God gave it to him. And he gave him all the other things too. You start by asking God to increase your knowledge. After all, it is the work of the Holy Spirit, right? It is the work of the Spirit illuminating the word of God to us, the power of the Holy Spirit that increases our knowledge of God's will. But we don't sit back and let the Spirit and let God do all the work for us. We play a part in our increasing of the knowledge of God. We, we become students of our Bible. That's the next thing that we do. We get our Bibles. We grow in the knowledge of his word. And you do that in a few ways. You do that corporately. You realize that every time that you come to a Lord's Day gathering, there is potential, if I do my job right, that you can increase in your knowledge of God's will. So I'm actually charged to do that. Colossians 1.28, it says that I'm supposed to present you mature in Christ. That is by growing in the knowledge of God's will. So every Lord's Day gathering you commit to, that's what can happen. You can grow in your knowledge. It also happens personally, right? So it's not just here on Sunday. You come, uh, you go home and you pick up the scriptures. You self-feed. You love your Bible. You study your Bible. You don't glance over it like a coffee cup verse. You spend time in it. You linger in the scriptures until God has given you something of himself. Diligent, regular, daily, attentive reading. But God has also wired us to grow in the knowledge of God relationally with one another too. Iron sharpens iron. And some of us, all of us, we need brothers and sisters in the faith to come alongside of us to help us grow in the fullness of the knowledge of God. How do you do that at our church is you get involved in a group. We talk a lot about that at our church. Life group, D groups, whatever the case is, you get into a group of people and the Lord has put something super heavy on me through conviction and through illumination of the scripture, it says, hey, a successful church is not how many people show up on Sunday. It's not how many people come to your Bible studies and all of your events. God says, the measure of the health of a church will be are the people in your congregation growing and maturing in the knowledge of God's will. And so that's why we're doing a lot of groups a lot of discipleship, a lot of great commission, make disciples of all nations. Are you being discipled at this church? There's opportunities every single week for you to do these things. That's what your blue cards are for. Talk to a group. It says it right there on the blue thing. 
All you gotta do is say yes. We also need people who are disciplers. We need people who are able to teach what they know about the knowledge of God's will to other people. So we need you to step in and let the word of God direct you in what you need to do today. Let's go to the second piece. That was, a, that was probably the bulkiest piece of all of it's the foundation. The second piece is Paul prayed that they would grow in holiness. Holiness, Colossians 1.10. He says this, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. So Paul goes on to pray he says, hey, I don't, I don't just want you to be filled with the knowledge of God's will. That's not the purpose. It's just to be all head. That's not his purpose here. He says, the purpose of increasing in the knowledge of God's will is so that you and me may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. You know, walk is a, a biblical euphemism for living. So when you see something say, walk this way, it just means to live this way. Here's how you live. Here's how you walk. And so Paul is making this connection between knowing the Bible and living the Bible. Big difference, right? You do know that the devil himself knows a lot of the Bible, right? But he doesn't obey. He doesn't walk. Listen to what John Piper says about this. I love this. He says, the devil has more knowledge and has had more theologically accurate thoughts about God in the last 24 hours than you will have in a lifetime. But he does not obey. He does not have humility, love, or walk in the truths that he knows. Walking, living, is the evidence that the knowledge of God is being effective. Walking is also, um, you think about the, uh, physically walking, you take one step at a time, right? It's not running, it's walking one step at a time. Walking is the process of progressive sanctification in our life as a Christ follower. Steadily walking one step at a time in obedience, Day-to-day sanctification, it is a process for the rest of our life. Takes time, there's no magic pill, there's no instantaneous walking or progressive sanctification. It just takes time, it takes labor. Step-by-step of obedience. He says that the knowledge of God's will should also bear fruit, which is another biblical euphemism for what comes out of our life and our actions. So if we are increasing in the knowledge of God's will, he says you'll bear fruit. Like a physical tree bears fruit, the life of a believer will also bear fruit. What does fruit look like out of the knowledge of God? What is the fruit of the knowledge of God's will? It's works. It's works. It's Church commitment, the gathering commitment, it's giving, it's praying, it's serving, it's growing in community with one another, it's, it's serving the poor, it's reaching the community, it's sharing the gospel, it's living sin, it's teaching other people 
the knowledge of God. That's what fruit looks like, fruit of the knowledge of God. Do you have any of that fruit? Do you have fruit? That's a heart question for you today. You have knowledge, but maybe you don't have any fruit. Let me tell you about this, this idea of someone who has the knowledge of God's will, but it doesn't work out in their lives. It doesn't show up. It's not an evidence of those things. You know what that's like? I'll give you a, I'll give you a couple of illustrations. It's like the guy down at Gold's. He's rocking a string uh, tank top. I mean, it, but he's, I mean, he's jacked. Bro is jacked up. He's all upper body, bench press, shoulder press, bicep curls. He's all over it. And you look down, he's just wearing some little pants. He's hiding his legs. He's all head. He's got no foundation and you can push him over with a breeze. That is what a Christian who has all head knowledge and has no walk in their life. People who sit at the feet of Jesus walk in the footsteps of Jesus. They do what he did. They live how he lived. They loved how he loved. Maybe a a, a good way, a better way to illustrate this is I'm gonna read you a story, a little snippet of a guy who was all head, no walk in his life. There was a dichotomy between his knowledge and how he lived. Um, And and it's from Paul Tripp. And um, he talks about a a guy, figuratively, a guy named Dave. But I'm I'm gonna read it. But ladies, don't check out. Because this is not just about Dave. It's not just about men. It could be men or women. Listen to how he describes it. Let me tell you a story of a guy named Dave. Dave was one of the most theologically knowledgeable men I've ever met. He was filled with the knowledge of God. But there was a dangerous, dysfunction-producing gap between what Dave said and how Dave lived. His friends found him more than hard to handle. He was arrogant They were always made to feel small and judged around him. He lacked joy. He was unloving, unapproachable. He hated small talk. He was a contemplative scholar filled with knowledge, confident, defensive, ready to pounce on someone with the next debate. The problem was no one wanted to debate him. They either wanted to run from him or help him. But the problem was, is Dave didn't want to be helped. Sure, he could exegete and explain the doctrine of God's sovereignty. But the situations and relationships of his daily life, he had to be in complete control. He had an airtight Christology, but unlike Christ, he did not love well, serve well, or forgive well. In his home, this master of the theology of God's grace was a man of ungrace. He was known more for his impatient criticism than patient mercy. 
His marriage was cold and crumbling. His children feared him, but they did not love him. His neighbors knew him, but only as the curmudgeon down the street. To say that there was a contrast between the knowledge of God and the way Dave lived would be an understatement. Listen, church, we might, we might be a, a lot more like Dave than we would dare to admit. If we're being completely honest with ourselves, there is probably some level of a dichotomy between what we believe and how we behave in our own lives. May we hear Paul's lesson here and our lives match our minds and our lips. What are you doing with the knowledge you have of God's will? What are you doing when you load up on sermons and podcast all the time? And you do those good things, of course, growing in the knowledge. What are you doing with it? Is it for you to puff up and have a Gnostic-like spirit in you that you use for the gain of self so you can flex what you know around other people? Or do you live out and you walk in a manner that's worthy of the Lord. Clearly, clearly Paul's not just talking about going to church here, right? I mean, he's not like, okay, you know about God, go to church. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about living our lives worthy of the king. I think about the sobering words of Jesus Christ in Luke 6, 46, who says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Let's go to the next section. Next section is more power. Paul prayed for them to have more power. Let's read Colossians 1.11. Being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. Power was a very attractive thing to the Greco-Roman world. Um, a lot of the polytheistic cultures and the toxic ideologies that were present, uh, they were promising also power. Power, they were constantly looking for power to heal, power to be delivered from demonic spirits, they were, they were looking for this kind of supernatural power in all these different things. And Paul says, hey, I'm, I'm praying that you get some power, right? But again, the power that Paul is talking about is different than the power that they were being offered by the false teachers. Paul is praying for them to have power. But look in the text here. But it was in order to give them endurance and patience with joy, not to heal, not to perform signs and wonders with the power, but so that they would endure and they would have great patience with joy. Paul's prayer for them to have power was about endurance. Endurance means standing strong in the storm, enduring persecution, hard times. As a follower of Christ, we live a happy life, but it is a hard life, right? Paul's saying, 
You need power to endure. Endure persecution and shame, confusion. Endurance to endure all of the lies of the world, to stand firm. Don't cave, don't give up. Endurance means the church must be prepared to not compromise the God of the Bible when the world we're trying to reach needs the God of the Bible. We don't compromise Jesus to a world who needs Jesus, right? And he's saying, I'm praying that you have the power to endure. He also prayed that we would have the power to have patience. Patience. This prayer for patience is patience with difficult people. Difficult people. Anybody in here know any difficult people? You go to church here, you know difficult people, right? I love what Spurgeon said about these people. He says this, people that were happy to meet in heaven, but were glad to avoid them on the earth. <laughs> it's real, right? He says, Paul, Paul said, you, you're gonna need some patience. You're gonna need to have some patience because impatience is the fruit of sin. Weak people are impatient. Impatient people often operate as functional gods because they expect everybody and everything to revolve around them. Paul says, you, you need to be patient. Patient people are strong people. After all, patience is a fruit of the Spirit, right? Patience. To be patient. Again, where does this come from? Comes from God. When I was reading this week about these two things that Paul was praying for, endurance and patience, and I think about, wow, this would have been a great passage to preach in the middle of COVID. When people who very much did not endure and were very impatient. Hey, I'm leaving. I'm out. They don't wear masks or they do wear masks. Peace out. They're, they're shaming us for doing this or doing that and they're moving stuff around. They're online. They're in person. They're scaring everybody. They're getting everybody sick. Oh, wow. The church was revealed in many, many ways for being Lacking in endurance and in patience. But we, we church through a pandemic well here at the creek. I'll tell you that right now. Yes, along the way, God did his pruning and purging. But wow, we did have people here who endured with great patience. This power, he says here, notice that it doesn't come from us by just being patient people and just enduring. Where does it say it comes from? He says that it comes from the glorious might of God. It's God-given. God gives this power. That's why Paul is praying to God, right? He's not saying, I'm praying the people. Man, they just got a lot of endurance and a lot of patience. So he's praying to the God who gives endurance and the God who gives patience. Now, let's wrap up. Last point. Here's the thing. Paul has given these weighty, weighty callings on our life. Weighty, weighty things here. 
In this last two passages here, 12 through 14, Paul breaks into this glorious gospel-centered theology that really undergirds everything he just said. Let's read it, 12 through 14. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption for the forgiveness of sins. We should grow in the knowledge of God. We should walk in a manner that is worthy of the Lord in our lives that's pleasing to him. We should have great endurance and patience with one another. And Paul says the reason that we should do all of those things is because of the gratitude we should have in God. That's what he says here. Gratitude in God. He says, you should have a lot of gratitude in God for what he has done for you. Four things he tells us what he does right here in these two passages. Because God has qualified you. God has delivered you. He's transferred you. And he has redeemed you. Those are the four reasons he tells us that we should do all of these things. You ever think about these things? God has qualified you. Don't blow past this. You know that in our born natural condition, we are unqualified for the kingdom of God. Blemished, sin-stained ledger, our spiritual resume says disqualified. There's nothing in us that is good, that is right, that is pleasing to God that he would look upon us and say, oh, good qualifications. That is not the gospel. He qualifies us by our belief and our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and for no other reason, not a result of work so that no man may boast. And for those who believe in Jesus, here's what he says, qualified. Notice it's in the past tense, but it's a present reality already for those who believe in Jesus. He says, qualified, not because you were qualified, but you are writing and living out the life of the one who's qualified you. You're living off the qualifications of Jesus. That is why he says, you are now qualified. Wow, it's amazing. God doesn't ever, you might've heard it like this, God doesn't ever call the qualified. He qualifies those who he calls. And that is what grace is all about. It says he also has delivered you out of darkness, transferred you into the kingdom of his beloved son. This is very promise land language. He has delivered and transported, transported us. He's kind of almost like he's deported us. He's taken us from one place and one people and pulled us out and separated us over here. He transferred us from the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of the devil, and he's transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. 
And once God delivers and transfers you, you don't ever want to transfer anywhere else. It's like the college football portal where you just change every week. You want to go to different schools. Oh, you're in forever and you love it because God has done that for you. And this last piece here, it says that God has rescued and redeemed us from the penalty of our sins. We have forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ. Again, don't blow past this. I don't know what you think is your greatest problem in your life. Some of you think that your greatest problem is finding a husband or a wife, a career that's just fulfilling, a dream unfulfilled, the car you want, the boyfriend, the girlfriend, plug in whatever. You, you might think that your greatest problem in life is someone in your life. Maybe it's a relational situation, my mom, my dad, my brother, my sister, my ex, whatever. You might think that all of those things are your greatest problem in life. The country, the country's the greatest problem in my life. The greatest problem in our life is unforgiven sin. It's the only lethal weapon that the devil can use against you, unforgiven sin. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus Christ, this man, receives sinners. The son of man has the authority on earth to forgive sin. He has rescued us, he has redeemed us, by his life, his death, and his resurrection. And church, he has delivered us from the slave market. This is what Christ Jesus has done for us. How do we respond to this today? Again, I know we're a little over. We had a lot of work to do today, but here's how we're gonna respond today. Band's gonna come out. The first thing I wanna ask you today is do you believe that Jesus has done that on your behalf? Do you believe that Jesus Christ has delivered you from the domain of darkness, he's transferred you, he's qualified you, he has forgiven you of your sins? Do you believe that? Or today might be the day that you finally stand up and say, I believe. I want to be saved today. If that is you, wow, what a great day of salvation it would be for you today. Receiving the grace of God, the gift of God, of his son, Jesus Christ. If that's you today, would you either... Mark something on your card. It doesn't have to be in depth, any kind of, we're not looking for your testimony today. Just put your name down. Uh, if that's you, after the service, we're gonna leave and come out to the right. Just go right out there and say, I don't know what you said. I feel really weird inside. I don't really know what I'm supposed to do here. Can you just help me? Like, if that's you, come talk to us today. We would love to celebrate the Lord Jesus with you. For you, a follower of Christ, 
One of the ways that we show our gratitude in God, which was the last thing that he's telling us, one of the ways we show gratitude in God is by the Lord's Supper, right? Giving thanks, breaking bread with one another. What's we're gonna do today as a church? And so here's how we're gonna do that. I wanna give you a, a few minutes where you sit today to do a little bit of eval and all the stuff we talked about. Evaluate your prayer life and say, God, my, my prayers have not been for the spiritual growth of other people, even myself. God, I am convicted. I want to grow in the knowledge of God. God, help me to walk in a manner that's consistent with what I believe. God, help me to grow in patience and endurance for the sake of the church. And God, help me to be overwhelmed with gratitude over the gospel. I wanna give you space to do that. And as we do this, as we fence the table, so to speak, if you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, this partaking of the elements here, um, this is not for you today. There's nothing magical in the elements, uh, religious, nothing saves you in these things. And so you withhold You do not partake in this because this is a family meal. We want you to be a part of the family. So that's where you step out and you come talk to us about Jesus and how you can be a part of the family of God. I wanna give you space to do that and then I'll come up and lead us to the elements.